Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. You may be seated. For those visiting us this morning, we're continuing as a church the expository preaching of God's word from the book of Ephesians. This will be our our third message in the book of Ephesians, a book that God has given to us as sinners, as sinners made saints for the edification of us individually, as families, as marriages, and as a church. This is God's holy and inspired word. And God used a, a man named Paul to write these, these words to us. We learned in our first couple of Sundays together that Paul was under house arrest in Rome as he wrote these words. God in his grace allowed Paul to be in a situation where despite Roman centurions outside of his front door, he was under house arrest. He was allowed to have visitors, other that would come into his abode to hear of Christ. And Paul saw fit to use his time in house arrest. The book of Ephesians tells us that he may have even had a, a shackle on his leg to tell of what Christ had done for us. Paul was always one to to be mindful of what he had been saved from, what he once was before being justified by Jesus Christ. Paul was always quick to tell who he was becoming through God's gracious sanctification. And Paul was exuberant to tell believers what they would become when ultimately glorified in the presence of Christ. Whether it was Paul's pen Paul's lips or Paul's life. He was exuberant and overflowing to tell of what Christ had done. The passage where we find ourselves today, verses 3 through 14, is written as one big run-on sentence in Greek. Paul was so overwhelmed by what Christ had done on his behalf that he didn't have writer's block. He wasn't, dear saints, uh, no. He was overflowing with, with expressions They were beyond words. He was so overwhelmed to impart this theology that it produced doxology. So we're going to reread this portion of Paul's introduction to Ephesians together. I'm going to invite you once again to to stand with me out of reverence for God's precious word. We're going to read from verses 3 through 14 together. Our message today will be focused on verses 7 through 10. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father in heaven, we ask for the empowering of your Holy Spirit. We ask for the grace that is ours alone through your son Jesus to understand these words, these transcendent words, these words that are life-changing, these words that ascribe to you all of the praise and the glory that is yours. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Throughout this first passage, Paul reminds us again and again of the joy that there is in knowing this triune God. He refers to to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he talks of the Father, and he talks of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us this rich theology. In our own humanness, we often come to a text, and, and we look for ourselves in the text, All around us, churches tend towards man-centered theology. We want to read this letter and think, it's about us. And praise God, it is about us. But you know, it's about him. To recap some of the things that we've seen in previous weeks, there are some deep truths about who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Verses three and four, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Praise God for that. How exciting. But you know what that reality tells us? That if he chose us, what does that make God? That makes God sovereign. And when did he choose us? Look at what he says. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us. So if he predestined us, what does that tell us about God? He's eternal. He's the alpha and he's the omega. Before the earth was formed, before all of this creation was set into motion, he had a plan. He is sovereign and he's eternal. Reading on, it says, in love, he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So if we have adoption, that makes us sons and daughters of the most high. But you know what else that makes God? That makes him father. That makes him our father. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, Brother Pete shared with us and reminded us this morning that that God is not just the father of Jesus Christ here and, and our father over here. We have the same father adopted into the same family. So just so far as we've unpacked the first couple of verses of Paul's introduction to this precious letter, we see that God is sovereign, that God is eternal, and that God is father. So this week, we'll pick up at verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We can't go any further than this because already we're, we're grasping to understand something that Paul is trying to put into words. 
He's putting things into words, concepts that are difficult to understand. Now, for the first century church, the word redemption would have had a ton of meaning. We know from what we've experienced so far, looking at this book, that there's a, a theme of unity, unity between Jews and Gentiles. To the Jewish recipients of Paul's letter, redemption meant one thing. Redemption meant that all the things that they had been telling their children from one generation to another about God being their redeemer was certain and true. We know that the Old Testament has as a, as a focal point the Exodus. God redeems his people by his mighty outstretched hand and he re redeems them from the hand of Pharaoh. He parts the Red Sea and he takes them out of their slavery. That theme of, of redemption was essentially what's celebrated every Passover. But to the, the Greeks in the mix and the people in the city of Ephesus, redemption may have had another meaning. We learned that Ephesus was a commercial center in the Roman Empire, people coming, people going. And no doubt, part of that economy was that of slavery. Slaves being bought and sold. People setting aside money to, to pay for their own freedom or to pay for the freedom of family members. So that word redemption would have been loaded with meaning for them. But what about for us as 21st century believers? What does redemption mean? Anybody use that word in a sentence recently? Probably not. We heard it a lot already this morning, but where do we hear the word redemption? Perhaps at the, at the grocery store, right? We redeem a coupon. Or we'll, we'll buy some, some soda and we'll notice on the top of the can it says CRV. That's California Redemption Value, right? You, you get done with it, you hand it in, and they buy it back from you. Redemption. It means to, to buy back. A theological dictionary on my shelf at home offered this definition of redemption. We're going to look at it a couple of times, but pay careful attention. To a theological definition of this word that we probably only hear on Sundays. Redemption involves the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through outside help. Their social, physical, or spiritual weakness makes redemption necessary. Only someone strong or rich can affect it. So God plays a leading role in redemption. Now this concept offends our modern minds on so many levels. The first is this. The first is, that quote tells us, that redemption, it says social, physical, or spiritual weakness makes redemption necessary, right? Who wants to say that they're weak? We hear the concept of redemption and we're like, what do you mean I'm weak? I, I've got it all under control. What do I need God for? Romans chapter five, verse six says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Redemption comes, it comes to us and it, it confronts us with the reality that we are weak and needful of one who would redeem us. Secondly, redemption offends us because it means that we're slaves. We like to think that we're autonomous. I can do whatever I want. I can make my own decisions. If we are not in Christ, that mentality means that we're actually slaves to sin. That idea that we can do whatever we want, that's our, that's our sinful nature. That's our old nature. 
Rob beautifully read for us Romans chapter 6. And I encourage you to turn that there in your Bibles with me. We'll look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Redemption shows that we're weak and that offends us. Redemption shows that we're slaves to sin and that offends us. But, you know, as I think of this, this concept of redemption being offensive to us, if you think it's offensive to us, think just for a moment how offensive that is to God. See, God had to buy back that which was already his. As God created mankind as a race, he took from, from the soil, from the dirt, and he breathed life into it, and he created the first man. He created mankind, and he would have to purchase it back. And then we think about us individually, each and every one of you in this room, if you're in this room today, God saw fit that at the moment of conception, you would be knit together in your mother's womb and that he would give you life. And now he has to buy you back? That's preposterous. To illustrate this point, a brief story from my own life, when my wife and I were first married, the first big investment that we made together was a pair of matching mountain bikes. For those of you who know me, that's probably not a surprise. My wife was working on Point Loma, and the bike was stolen. For those of you who live near Point Loma, probably also not a surprise. The bike was stolen. It was reported to the police. Several weeks later, I'm driving down Pacific Coast Highway, and I see a homeless individual on my wife's bike. The feelings and the emotion that filled me as I saw this brought me to a pull over the car, and have a brief conversation with this gentleman. And he informed me that he had purchased this bike and offered me the opportunity to purchase the bike back. Just, that bit of indignation serves as an incredible illustration for how a holy, just, eternal, sovereign God must feel about having to buy us back. But that's what he did. And how did he buy us back? How was this redemption made possible? Let's return to verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Now, that's also something perhaps a bit foreign for those of you who have been bringing loved ones and family to church recently and, and they've been experiencing this faith that is yours with a fresh set of eyes. Questions come up. What do you mean about through his blood? Anne mentioned to me that our brother... Pastor Miles was interviewed briefly on Fox News and he described Easter as a bloody holiday. Well, when you only get a sound bite to explain it, that just goes over everyone's head. So what does that mean that he purchased us through his blood? Well, first, we need to understand from scripture what blood has come to mean. Genesis chapter 9 four through six, we're gonna look at four different things that blood represents to help us understand what it is that Christ has done on our behalf. First of all, in Genesis, God says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. In other words, kill the animals before you eat them. For those of you who like your steaks medium rare, you can take that advice however you like. God goes on to say, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. 
from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So if you're taking notes there, blood equals life. The blood that courses through our veins, it carries nutrients and oxygen and all those things, it is life. To lose that blood, synonymous with death. Blood equals life. Secondly, blood equals culpability. Blood is, is at the scene of a crime. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25, verses fresh in our mind as we celebrate what Christ has done for us. The word of God says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather there was a riot beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all of the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Blood equals life and blood equals culpability. The divine crime scene, Christ crucified. Not only for us, but the word of God explains, but by us, because of us. It's our sins that were nailed to the tree. It's, it's our sins that caused Christ to be accursed on our behalf. For our breaking of the law, he suffered the due penalty. So blood is life and blood is culpability. And in Hebrews, we have this amazing collection of scripture that helps us understand all of these things from the old covenant that are hard for us to grasp. You see the priests and the Levites would have to go into the temple to the holiest place and, and sprinkle everything that was in there with the blood of an animal for its cleansing. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So blood is life Blood is culpability and blood is cleansing. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Blood is also that which ransomed us. Peter says, you were not purchased with perishable things like gold and silver, but you were, precious, you were purchased by the precious blood of the lamb, a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what blood means. When we come to blood, we understand that it means that our Redeemer laid down his life for our culpability to purchase our cleansing, to purchase our redemption. And you know, the most incredible thing about all of that is that redemption, what does that make God? Redeemer. So we see that, that our election makes him sovereign, our predestination makes him eternal, our adoption makes him father and our redemption makes him redeemer. And I love the words of Job. Simple verse. Could be a memory verse this week. It's a really easy one. Job 19.25. I know that my redeemer lives. The redeemer that shed his blood for us and laid down his life took it up again. Praise God for that. So returning to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. And what does that afford us? The forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses, our, our sins, our offenses, are all of the things that we have done to break God's law and that would warrant us what Christ received. 
Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, For he, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're hearing this for the first time today and the, the word redemption doesn't make a lot of sense, and you don't quite understand what it means that, that Christ's blood was shed for you, understand this. In simple terms, that is forgiveness that God offers you. That is forgiveness that God extends to you. What does that purchase for us? Forgiveness, a right relationship with God. And if you could return to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment, I want to tell you that Christ redeeming us sets us free from one form of slavery, but guess what? We're still slaves. But who, do, who are we slaves to now? We're slaves to Christ, our benevolent Savior, our faithful Redeemer. Look with me, if you will, at verse 20 and on. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. You see, if we're enslaved to, to sin, if we've yet to understand the redemption made possible through Jesus Christ, we're slaves to a nature that offends a holy God. And the consequence of that is eternal separation from him. Look what it says. The end of those things is death. What is the fruit that you are getting from those things? The things that you're ashamed of. One doesn't have to live too many years as a slave to sin, doing whatever we want, to realize that we make mistakes for which we are deeply embarrassed. We're embarrassed even to tell others of those, much less a holy God that sees everything that we do. That's the God that we've offended. Yet that God sees fit to love us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf. And look at the good news here. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We're slaves of who? We're slaves of God. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that his blood makes it possible for him to purchase us and to make us his under new ownership. Praise God for that redemption. Continuing on to, to verse 7. We see in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to the riches of his grace. We won't spend a lot of time on this today because the riches of his grace will come up again and again as themes as we move through this book. And as I mentioned, the words that Paul is trying to use in Greek don't do justice to describing what he's trying to tell us about. And when we translate them into English, even, even less so. But we find words to describe the grace of God throughout this book, words like immeasurable, words like abounding, words like riches, words like lavish. Words can't even describe this grace. And the Apostle Paul uses the description of riches, right? The, talk about a prosperous gospel. <laughs> the, the prosperity gospel is that, that there's an infinite amount of grace that God shows to us through his son, Jesus. There is no amount of sins that he cannot cover. One of the commentaries that, that we brothers are using that talks about this, uh, this notion of, of God's riches is that 
if a wealthy person were to give away some money out of what he or she had, it would just be a, a fraction or a small representation of those riches. But in God's case, what he gives to us decrements his account in no way. It's infinite. His grace is, is so infinite that we can't even comprehend it. Paul tries to explain it, and he does so in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, I want to tie something back and, and help us understand that as he has given us his grace and he has paid our account, that in turn gives us some of the currency of God's grace with which we live our Christian lives. On the topic of, of forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. One of the ways that the, the riches of God's grace are manifest is that we have been recipients of God's grace, and therefore we have the ability to live out that grace. A theme throughout this precious letter that we're going to explore together is unity. We can't have that unity in Christ without extending to one another the grace that he has given to us. And I'd encourage you, if there are any other brothers and sisters in the church that, that you may have had friction with in the last months, we've all been going through tough times. We've all been going through challenging times. If there is a, a need to extend that gospel grace, that forgiveness, take the opportunity to do it today. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul goes on to, to describe this lavishing of grace. He says, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. It's an interesting word, lavished. At first, when I came to a mental picture of the, the riches of God's grace and what he lavished, I pictured Scrooge McDuck. Anybody remember the show DuckTales? There's a, a pool, a giant pool full of gold coins and Scrooge McDuck jumping into the gold coins. It's just this, this opulent, lavish, over-the-top wealth. But then I get to the word lavish and I, I do a little research and it, it actually helps for those of you who are, who are Spanish speakers to understand that the word lavish has as its Latin root, lavar, like to wash, to wash over. The word that Paul is using here is, is to describe a deluge of water, a deluge of rain, an overabundance that goes beyond what we can describe. And curiously, as we look at this, that God has lavished upon us, another word, another place that the same Greek word is used is in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 15. This idea of overabundance, a downpour. And here's what Paul says as he goes into this precious text, he's, he's saying, he's describing what happens to those who are recipients of God's grace. It says, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see, there's a connection between what's lavish, which is his grace, and thanksgiving. I'll give you one more analogy to help you understand. During a, a couple of years that my family and I lived in Costa Rica. We left Pacific Hope and went to language school in Costa Rica. And the, the school there perfectly synchronized their dismissal bell with seasonal rains. And these seasonal rains were so excessive that it was impossible to arrive home anything less than saturated. 
and we would come in the front door from this torrential downpour of rain, and it would leave a lake on the floor, a puddle. And what an incredible analogy. As God saturates us with his lavish grace, it ought to leave behind a puddle of thanksgiving. Isn't that incredible? It should be so obvious that we've been out in the, the rain of God's grace, his lavishness, that it spills over into how we lead our lives. The connection there, the word that Paul uses, that overabundance, grace, produces a what? An overabundance of thanksgiving. If that's not a hallmark of our life as Christians, go back and look at his grace again. If you don't have thanksgiving in your life, go back and look at his grace again. Count it. It's immeasurable. Count it. There is riches. It's lavished upon us. And how is it lavished upon us? It says that God lavishes this, Ephesians 1 verse 8, when he lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. He lavished this to us by giving us a knowledge of himself and all wisdom and all insight. God made it possible for us to know him as he has revealed himself through his wisdom and insight. Looking at the concept of wisdom and, and insight and him making known to us who he is, it's important that we understand that, that God makes himself revealed in a general sense, as Romans, 1 chapter, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, through creation. We can look at a beautiful San Diego day and God makes himself revealed. But we also know as we gather together with his word, with his saints, and we understand the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, he's revealed to us in a special way his plan for salvation. Louis Burkhoff, in his famous book on systematic theology, talks of the knowledge we have of who God is. And he says this, the knowledge of God presupposes not only that God has revealed himself, but also that man is capable, either constitutionally or by virtue of a gracious work of renewal, of receiving and appropriating this revelation. If a man did not have the ability, the divine revelation, while existing objectively, would forever remain foreign to him and exercise no influence on his life. Those are a lot of big, heady words. Systematic theology is tough, but the last sentence is important. If man did not have that ability, the divine revelation, while existing objectively, would remain foreign to him and exercise no influence on his life. Can you imagine what our lives would be if we didn't have that revelation? Look at the world around us, and you'll see people on whom that revelation of God is foreign and has no influence on them. But thanks be to God, he has given us that wisdom and insight. We learn from our study together in the book of James that it is God's delight to reveal himself and to give him wisdom. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if we've been given wisdom and insight, what does that make God? Generous. He's a generous God. He's given us that understanding of who he is, what he's created, and what he's done for us through Christ Jesus. There's a general revelation and a specific revelation, but there's something else going on here that Paul's trying to explain to us. And we see this elsewhere in Paul's theology. But he says, 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. The word mystery is used seven times in the book of Ephesians. It's used elsewhere in Paul's letters. And it's a word that for the audience of the day would have grabbed their attention. In Corinth, Paul used the, the word to talk about mystery in 1 Corinthians 2.7. He says, but we impart, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. For some of the Greek philosophers, the idea of a mystery is something that's new and novel and they wanted to discuss it in the public forums. But in Ephesus, it meant something just a little different. As Brother Ty explained to us, Ephesians was a place where there was a great deal of, of occult activities. There was mythology and the, the mixing of different views of the Greek gods and the Roman gods and all these different things. And they had these concepts of illicit relations between foreign gods, between these, these different false gods, and how that would bring about these little scandals between the deities. And those were mysteries, and those were secrets. And so Paul uses a word that might have grabbed their attention, and you know what he says? He says, but this mystery has been made known to us, making known to us the mystery of God's will. If we look at Scripture, we understand this concept of progressive revelation. God begins in Genesis with creating. He begins by revealing himself through what he's created. And throughout scripture, he makes himself more and more clear through judges, through prophets, through kings, and ultimately through the advent of Messiah. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, what I whisper to you you're going to shout it on housetops. You're going to proclaim it from rooftops. This mystery revealed. It was revealed from the moment of Christ's birth, even before that. And that mystery continues to be revealed. Part of the way that God revealed that mystery is by using a, a covenant people to explain his plan for us. He took this guy, Abraham, and he brings him out of Ur of Chaldea, all the Chaldeans can raise their hands, right? Ur of Chaldea, and he, and he takes them, and he says, I'm going to take from, from this group of people, I'm going to make you a people. You weren't a people, but you're going to be a people. And I'm going to deal with you through covenants, and I'm going to show my faithfulness, and I'm going to give you law. But that's not the end of it. In due time, I'm going to make for myself a more extensive covenant people. I'm going to adopt other sons and daughters. I'm going to take those, as Paul says, who are far off and bring them near. You see, that's the mystery of his will. Look with me, if you will, just one chapter ahead, Ephesians, two chapters ahead, rather. Ephesians chapter three. The word mystery comes up three times in this passage that we'll, we'll touch on briefly. Starting at verse one of chapter three, we'll read through verse nine. For this reason, I, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not a prisoner of the Romans, right? Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. So how is this mystery made known to Paul? God opened the eyes of his heart. Curiously enough, the first thing that Paul experienced upon encountering Christ was a physical blindness. God put something like scales over his eyes. 
But then, as Paul says, God enlightened the eyes of his heart and he revealed him this mystery. What's the mystery? When you read this, verse four, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery, ready? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, to, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I was the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. The mystery declared from ages past and now revealed through the holy apostles and the prophets and through the words of Paul, spoken and written on paper. That mystery, that the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, is now a God who calls us all his people through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. That unity in the church, Jew and Gentile, that's the mystery of his will. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul goes on to describe how this plan is continuing to take shape. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We know, church, that we celebrate and understand the theology of, of the already and the not yet. You see, Paul is very mindful of what he once was. He tells us that throughout the book of Ephesians. He's also very concerned with communicating who we now are in Christ. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We were far off. We've been brought near. But he's also concerned with, with helping us understand what we will be because of what Christ has already done on our behalf. He's also concerned that we understand that this mystery is one that is continuing to unfold. We can think of the light of the gospel. How does creation begin? God said, let there be light. And there was light. And, and we know that as we go through scripture, we see that the Gentiles were walking in, in darkness and a light would come from the shores of Galilee to, to illuminate them. And then Christ comes and what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. John 1 says, men love darkness more than light. And Jesus declares to them that he is the light. And now at the fullness of time, We'll look at that in just a second. Keep that in your mind. Fullness of, in the fullness of time, the light of Christ has been revealed to us. But wait, there's more. That light is continuing to increase as the gospel is spread through 
little pockets of believers, the righteous remnant all around the globe. Sinners are coming to repentance. Salvation is being proclaimed, and that light is going to get brighter. You know how we know that? Because he promises us that. Turn in, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. As we see his plan for the, the full fullness of time. Revelation chapter 22, we'll start at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, like we sang together today, right? No longer will be there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, and the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's like a, a dimmer switch from creation getting brighter and brighter as Christ comes. And as he comes again to establish his, his new creation, the promise is that that light will never again be dimmed. There will be no night. The Lord God himself will be their light. So as, as Paul writes about the fullness of time, he's pointing to two things. He's pointing to the already and the not yet. I want to wrap up our time together today in, in Galatians. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 summarize beautifully what Paul is trying to tell us in these first passages of Ephesians. He's going to help us understand that what God has accomplished through his son Jesus for our redemption, through his blood, shows God to be eternal, to be sovereign, to be redeemer, to be father, to be gracious. Look what Paul says, starting at verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. When I was a kid, I had a custodial bank account. My first bank account, my grandmother helped me open that account. And, and I couldn't touch any of the money in that account unless grandma went to the bank with me. But I knew it was there, right? And, and look what Paul is saying here. He's saying the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, even though he is the owner of everything. Those riches of God's grace reserved for us in heaven. They're ours. But we need him to make them available to us. It says in verse two, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, see, that's the already. The fullness of time, Paul describes as God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. See, for us as new covenant believers, that's past tense. That fullness of time has already taken place. When we see the word fullness in what Paul writes to us, it's complete. It's perfect. It's just the right time. At just the right time, 
the God-man came, sent by the Father, born of a woman, born under the law, with his purpose. His purpose is to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As we think of that, we, we understand that we're sons of God. We're heirs of all that God has stored up for us in heaven. We are recipients of his lavish grace. They've been poured out on us. All of that, as we heard Brother Bobby say a few weeks back, all of that theology ought to produce in us, what? Doxology, overflowing. Paul didn't have writer's block. He probably had a hand cramp. He couldn't even begin to express all that Christ had done on his behalf. All of this, not only does it help us understand our identity as followers of Jesus Christ, but it points us to him who is worthy of every praise. The passage in Ephesians over and over says, to the praise of his glory. That's what this is all about. It's, it's about the benefits we receive, yes, and, and amen. But it's about who God is. Our predestination shows that he's eternal. Our election shows that he's sovereign. Our adoption shows that he's father. Our redemption shows that he's redeemer. Our forgiveness shows that he's gracious. All this to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father God, words cannot express who you are, what you are, what you've done for us. Words cannot express what you have prepared for us. Your promises have come to pass. You've fulfilled every word that you have spoken to us and, and we know that there are promises yet to be fulfilled and we, we trust you for those. We wait for your fullness of time, for your perfection of time when ultimately our inheritance will be given to us in full. We'll be made new creatures in your presence and we'll never experience darkness. God, we long for that day, but in the meantime, God, we praise you that your word and your spirit are sufficient. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to sing your praises together. May we leave here today overflowing with forgiveness for one another as you have forgiven us in Christ. May we also leave with puddles of thanksgiving behind us, Lord God, because what you've done for us is unspeakable. The debt that you have been paid is beyond what we could even put in words. But thank you, Lord God, that you give us your word. We pray that we would put this into practice and that you would be honored through our lives, that our lives would themselves be a doxology to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.